Sorry, I was writing so fast, I couldn't read it. And I wrote, down, I wrote down Cindy so fast, but the C and the I came together, and so it looked like Andy. And I said it, and I looked at it, and I was like, that's not the name. So there's an Andy out there that's getting saved today, and you need to know that it's, it's because we prayed for him. Um, <clears throat> all right, so last week we talked about um, rationalism and spiritualism as sort of this response to um, the way in which the Reformation uh, pushed both Protestant churches and Catholic churches um, towards this finer and finer straining out of doctrine. And so um, as the church went forward, especially because churches uh, were connected to states, um, they had to continually refine their doctrine and, and make sure that people knew what was right and what was good and what was wrong and what was bad. And it got to the point where um, the preaching in many of these churches, well, let's go from the preaching in the churches back to what Catholics ended up doing, which was the Council of Trent. And in the, in the Council of Trent, um, again, these finer and finer points of anathema kept coming up where, where they were anathematizing people for very, very small deviations from Catholic teaching. Um, and Protestant churches um, began to sort of do the same. Uh, we have um, you know, a lot of uh, the rejection of brothers and sisters in the Lord because of a difference of, of opinion. Very early on in the Lord's Supper, um, we have uh, both Protestants and Catholics um, uh, putting to death Anabaptist believers. Um, we have the rejection of Arminian believers from, from the Dutch churches in Holland. And so this kind of... S- detailed way of saying you have to believe these very, very fine points all the way down um, is starting to fragment what, what really was a pretty cohesive movement. Um, so when we talk at first, there was the rejection of Catholicism and then really Luther's Protestant churches. Um, now, eventually, Luther would, would not help matters by forcing this sort of break with um, with the teachers in Zurich, and um, that, that would lead to further fractions down the line. But at first, you know, for the first couple of decades, there was really the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, and the Protestant Churches all kind of believed the same stuff. Uh, and the further away we get, the, the more fractured things are getting. So the, the response to this was, was twofold. Um, ph- philosophically, and philosophers came in and said, well, human reason is going to triumph over all things. And what we want to do is have this sense of universalism where there's not much to debate about. We want to have a basis of belief and thought and action that everyone can get on board with. And the, the only way we're going to be able to do that is by rationally coming to agree on things that people can't disagree with. So there's this, this um, sort of formulation of human wisdom in the terms of a geometric proof where we have these axioms and then we're going to prove things off of there and people can't disagree with these things. And so we can all agree with these things and, and we'll just get along forever, um, which was folly when it started. It's folly still today. Um, there's just nothing that, that works like that. Um, even the, the axioms that you know, Descartes put forward were debatable at the very start. So um, that was the rationalist tendency. The spiritualist tendency is on, on the complete other side of that. Um, not, not a universalism where everybody can agree on this, but basically just saying, you do you. So if the Spirit moves you to believe these things, the, the God of the universe is, is helping you to be led in this way, that's sort of the direction that you go. A real 
um, at times of frank and utter denunciation of the word of God. At other times, the word of God is perfectly fine, but the, the emphasis is, is going to be on being, being prophets or having things revealed to you by God. Um, and so what you end up with is this very privatized, individualized religion. And both of these things have hands in, in where we are today and in the way in which people respond as even as Christians uh, to the church and to the word of God today, um, whether it's through this individualized, I, I can stand on my own type of Christianity, which is really a spiritualist type of thing, um, where people also deny the word of God because they want to stand on their own and, and they believe in their own um, sort of response uh, to the, the prodding, what they think is the prodding of the spirit. And this also rationalist response, which says that um, our ability to reason as human beings uh, trumps Scripture, and and that's still present today. Um, The third response to this is what we're going to cover kind of today, and um, we're going to settle down and and use this time to talk about um, John Wesley, Um, but before we get to, um, every time I look at this now, I, I read Harry Potter to the kids, and I look at Wesley, and I want to say Weasley, and it's super, super annoying to me. Um, so, Wesley. Uh, but before we get there, we'll, we'll talk about the beginnings of uh, what we're going to call pietism, which is basically just a longing for piety. And this was the reaction against this very narrow dogmatism of the church, was to say, um, people don't just need doctrine, people need devotion. And, and that's what that's why when we talk about Wesley and we talk about what's going to, to occur, this is really our reaction to, to those very finer points of theology, is to say those finer points of theology are fine and, and we want to uphold them as being good in their own right, but what we're really looking for is to use those things to drive us to devotion. And if they don't drive us to devotion to God, then um, they're, they're not worth it in the end. Uh, <clears throat> The guy who kind of kick-started this, pietism had, had been around for a long time. And you, you find this, by the way, in a number of Catholic Reformed movements um, spanning back into the Middle Ages. There were always people who were pushing for, for uh, others to know the Lord, for themselves to know the Lord deeply and passionately first, and then for others to do this as well. Um, this was the, the function when they worked well of the monasteries, of being a monk and things like that, was devoting yourself to studying the word and knowing the Lord. So this isn't just a Protestant thing, but as far as Protestants go, um, a man named Philip Spiner was probably, um, and I, it could be Spener or Spiner, um, but he was a, a Lutheran Gent. He was born in 1635, um, and he studied theology, became a pastor, and, and the Lutheran pastors in those days, um, because they're tied to the state, they eventually um, probably a little bit, we would want to think a little bit more righteously, but they, they tend to start acting like the problems that Protestants had with Catholic priests. Because they're tied to the state, what they viewed their work as is nothing more than to preach what sometimes were just highly academic sermons, um, and to make sure that they watched over the ordinances. So they would, they would make sure that they were providing the communion for the gathering every week. They would be doing baptisms for the kids. And beyond that, they, they didn't care. So people hopefully showed up. They hopefully responded. But their job was to preach and to feed 
spiritually by the table and then to sprinkle babies when they came into the world. And beyond that, they, they were not concerned with much. Um, Philip decided that that wasn't going to be his lot in life. Um, as a pastor, he thought and he, he found in Luther reasons for there to be much more than that presented to the people of God. And so what he wanted was he wanted people to not simply go through this sort of rote Christianity, but to be deeply devoted to God. And so he um, went about um, bringing people into these, these times of Bible study and, and times of devotion where um, they would begin to grow more deeply connected to God, um, where they would grow in their piety. Uh, he thought very highly of the fact that the world is never going to be what Christians want it to be, um, which is kind of a, a Baptist thought. He was basically separating out the, the, the believers from the state. Um, but he recognized that uh, the call on Christians was to be more than just moral in the eyes of the world and to do the things of showing up for Christianity. And so he pressed people on that. And this was really born out of Luther's insistence that um, there is a priesthood of all believers. So this is something that Baptists hold dear, but Luther was the one who pressed this forward um, because the priests were a separate entity in Roman Catholic thought. But for him, every believer was to be a priest, right? And so he finds this in scripture um, because there, it's a nation of priests. And so the idea for for Spiner was, if, if that's true, then not only were the priests not to be necessarily more holy than everybody else, and pastors also then weren't supposed to be exceptionally holy and not worry about the, the spiritual well-being of their sheep, that this is a call given to all Christians to pursue the Lord. It doesn't mean that pastors aren't to be holy. They clearly thought pastors were to be holy, um, but it was a call for everyone else to catch up to that. Um, and this is something we do today, you know, when, when I get a chance to talk to people, um, especially um, the men, if, if I sit down with them one-on-one, uh, oftentimes I'll look at them and say, hey, you know, First Timothy 3, if we open that up and we read through it, the question that ought to be present to you is in, in five years, um, in two years, in three years, in four years, in five years, um, is there any, any reason why you wouldn't be a good candidate to be an elder, right? So it, it might be that you don't have an aspiration to do it. it. It might be that you don't have the ability to teach. But the rest of those moral qualifications for men are just good moral qualifications for Christians, right? This is the goal for all of us. And so elders are not held out as being more pious than, than other people. They're held out as being able to teach and, and to aspire to lead the church. Um, but that, that's really what all of us ought to be gunning for. And this is what Spiner um, presses his people in. He writes um, something called the Pia Desideria, um, which is which is the um, pietist equivalent to the rule of Benedict. So the Benedictine rule was this rule that Benedict had written um, a long, long time ago in, in the third or fourth century um, that basically said, if you're going to live in my monastery, this is the way in which you're going to live. Okay, so there, there were famous rules. There was an Augustine, Augustinian rule for Augustinian monks. Um, There's a Benedictine rule for Benedictine monks. Um, this was kind of the rule for pietists. This is a, a process by which you become more pious, more holy, more devoted to God. Uh, becomes very influential and famous. Um, 
there was um, some of backlash from the people who were in power in Lutheranism at the time, um, but, but one of the things that marks Spiner out from the rationalist response and the spiritualist response is that he could do all of this and maintain a very sincere devotion to the teaching of the church. So he, he was a Lutheran right down the line. He, he didn't buck the system. He just wanted people to buy into it. Um, he, he uh, unlike the rationalists and the spiritualists who in some shape or form have to jettison scripture as their foundation, um, the whole process that you get from a lot of these dudes is that scripture is the basis for this. You, you can't you can't become more pious outside of Scripture. And so it's a much more, obviously, biblical way of, of going about it. And Spiner noted that there was a problem with Luther's teaching. Um, so he was Orthodox Lutheran, but Luther was um, so disturbed by his own lack of righteousness when he was um, a monk and his pursuit of, of trying to confess his sin and, and make himself righteous on his own, and his utter inability to do that, that um, when he found justification by faith and, and sort of came to that conclusion, and when that became such a touchstone by the Catholics against him, this kind of consumed his life and writings. And, and there comes this huge hole, this lacuna, in the works of Martin Luther, where he just, he almost never talks about sanctification. Like, he just doesn't, doesn't do it. And it's not that Luther thought that it wasn't important, um, you, would, you would assume, and uh, it's not that Reformed thinkers and, and other thinkers didn't get around to it. Calvin obviously talks about it. Um, but Luther just doesn't do it. And, and you, you wonder if that's not part of the reason why um, the Catholic response to a much Protestant teaching was, was how it was. When they, when they basically look at Protestants and say, you guys say that you're saved by faith and then there's nothing else, right? Um, a lot of that possibly is, is attached back to Luther and his, his just overriding emphasis on justification by faith and not ever talking about sanctification. But Spiner comes in and he says, okay, we're, we're saved by faith and, and now we need to teach our people that there's more than that. And so he was kind of the start of it. Um, his cause is taken up a bit by his, his grandson, um, who has a, a wonderful name. Uh, it's Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zizendorf, um, which is, is just a, a very excellent name. Um, and he was moved by his, his father's teaching. He comes in contact with Moravians. Uh, Moravians are um, Hussites. So if you remember Jan Hus uh, from the 15th century, um, you probably don't know him personally, but uh, his his teaching um, was he was condemned and um, burned uh, as a heretic, um, primarily for teaching that scripture is is right, and when the pope is wrong, the pope is wrong, and he is not to be followed. And um, when he is doing things for his own personal gain, uh, we should kick him out and get a new pope. Um, and so Huss, uh, we talked about him a number of months ago, I guess, now. Um, Huss had this band of followers. They eventually found their way into, um, they were called Moravians by this time, found their way into Zizendorf's sort of camp, and, and he found a place for them to stay, tried to incorporate them into Lutheranism. Um, the Lutheran establishment wasn't fully accepting of them at first. That little organ transplant was sort of rejected. Um, eventually, was, they were taken in and then kind of loosely kicked out. So it was always a, this rough thing. Um, but the Moravians 
had this appetite for pietism anyway. It grew in them, and it led them to missions. And so um, by the time that, that William Carey was born, who we consider to be the father of modern missions, Moravians had um, sent out people specifically to convert people, to spread the word of God um, to places like the Caribbean, to Africa, India, South America, and North America 30 years before William Carey was even born. Um, so I think it's fine to call William Carey the father of modern missions because the Moravians just didn't have that much influence. William Carey obviously did, um, and he, a lot of people followed in his footsteps, but uh, just remember, William Carey was not the first one to press for, for missions. These Moravians did it before him, and they play a story in Wesley's life. Um, Wesley uh, was born in England in 1703, he was born into uh, what we would call a very well-educated family and an incredibly fertile family. Um, his dad was the 15th child of his family. Um, his mom, uh, his maternal grandmother, gave birth to 25 children. Um, only, uh, or I don't know how many of those lived uh, into uh, adulthood. Um, his mother would eventually give birth to 19 children. Um, so very fertile people. Um, but the, the rule of the day was um, fertility didn't mean your infants would live. So while uh, he was the child of a woman who gave birth 19 times, only nine of those lived past infancy. And we would assume that few of those nine, not all of those nine, would even make it into adulthood. Um, the Wesleys were um, a very accomplished family. We're going to talk about John. I do want to take just a moment to talk about Charles. Um, Charles is less well-known, less influential, um, but you probably know him better because he is the one who wrote all the hymns. Um, Charles is one of the most famous and um, uh, famous hymn writers of all time, but I also want to say like wrote more long-lasting hymns than others. So there, there were people who probably wrote more hymns than Charles Wesley. John wrote a lot too, um, but Charles wrote a number of them that have stuck around for a long time. So we sing a couple of them. Um, and Can It Be was written by him. Christ the Lord is risen today. Come thou long expected Jesus. Hark the herald angels sing. Um, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, Jesus, lover of my soul, uh, love divine, all loves excelling. Um, some of those you know, uh, if you have been in a Baptist church that sung hymns, you definitely know those. Um, and so uh, his brother was, was highly influential um, across a number of denominations because these are just really good hymns. Um, but uh, John is the, the better known um, Wesley brother. Um, he had a, this sort of stern but really loving family. Um, dad was uh, um, a graduate of Oxford, uh, very, very bright. Um, mom was also very, very bright and studious. Um, the ch children each and every day were, were to come before her and to present to her readings and things like that. And they uh, were just very, very stern about these things, that these were going to happen every day. Um, and so... Uh, he was very well prepared to go to college. He went to Oxford, like his dad. A um, couple of things in his youth that are of note. Um, one, uh, it became popular to remark on this when, when John became famous and was being used by God. Um, their family's house caught fire at one point in time, 
and he was saved from an upper story window by two guys, one standing on the shoulders of another, then reaching up. Apparently, the English hadn't thought of ladders at this time, so um, they, they just stood on one another's shoulders and took him out, and his dad said he was like one plucked out of, like a brand out of the fire, um, which people then thought was sort of prophetic as he became incredibly important later. Um, the other thing which I find incredibly odd for very pious people, and maybe this is just a difference in the times in which they lived, um, they were assured, the whole family was assured that they had a ghost named Jeffrey that lived in their house, um, which, uh, one, the ghost thing is weird. Two, the name Jeffrey seems weird for a ghost. It doesn't seem like very, I, I don't expect them to name it Casper or anything, but the name Jeffrey, I thought, was interesting. They, always, they heard a lot of noises. Uh, they heard a lot of, of things, I, and I don't know if it was like things that had been moved around in their house. Um, one would like to think it was Charles doing this, the rest of his family or something like that, but they, they thought that they had a ghost named Jeffrey. So uh, that is apropos of nothing, just an interesting fact. Um, when Charles was at Oxford, he started something called the Holy Club, and the Holy Club was for people to, again, grow in, in devotion to the Lord, to, to really um, uh, show their piety, uh, to gain piety, to uh, get to know the Lord better. By the time John gets there, he's just an incredibly gifted man, and he kind of takes over the leadership of that, um, of that club. Um, the Holy Club basically uh, is really devoted. They met from six to nine every morning um, for singing, for um, prayer and for reading. The reading that they would do would only be out of the Greek New Testament as they were men of Oxford and, and um, most of them had done a lot of classical learning anyways. It wasn't a big deal for them. Um, they prayed. They would devote themselves to several minutes of prayer every single waking hour. So um, they, at the top of the hour or whatever it was, they would, they would pray um, where the Church of England at this time only required people to take the Lord's Supper three times a year. Basically, they're saying you need to show up three times a year. Um, I'm sure Christmas and Easter were two of those most welcome times. I don't know what the other one would be, maybe your birthday or whatever you'd show up. Um, but they were devoted to taking it every week. They would come and make sure that they took it every week. They fasted on Wednesday and Friday like they found uh, people in the early church doing. They would do this until 3 p.m. Um, and they were devoted to visiting people in debtor's jail. They would go and they would preach to the people in debtor's jail. They would oftentimes, uh, because a lot of these guys at Oxford came from more well-to-do families, they would oftentimes seek to relieve that debt when they could to release these guys from prison. So really devoted excuse me, really devoted folk. Um, England at the time was not terribly pious. And so the, the name Holy Club was not a name that they gave to the club, which would frankly sound pretty pious. Uh, or so, sorry, not pious. It sounds pretty pompous is the word I was looking for. Um, but it was a name that was meant to be pejorative that others gave to the club because they thought that this was just a ridiculous thing, that people would, would spend their time meeting and praying and reading the Word of God. Um, this was just something you showed up at church. They were, the people at Oxford, I'm, I'm sure, were still church people. They would still go to church, but, but doing all this extra stuff on the side when you really just need to go to church three times a year seems a bit much. You guys are just overextending yourself. Um, Eventually, uh, John does become a priest um, in the Church of England. Uh, he is led to Savannah, Georgia, where he is um, called to, um, to lead a congregation in the New World. And this isn't America yet, but it is the New World. Um, and on board the ship when he's crossing the Atlantic, 
there, there comes up this huge storm. Um, while he is crossing the Atlantic, he meets Moravians uh, who are there to go on mission. And their mission is specifically to the American Indians in Georgia. And so they're all traveling on the same ship going over. Um, in, in the span of a couple of weeks, he learns enough uh, German to be able to communicate with them and to talk with them a little bit. And um, at some point in time, this huge storm arises um, big enough to rip the main mast off the ship. And um, the English who are on board are kind of freaking out and are not well suited uh, to what's going on around them. And the Moravians are in the hull of the ship kind of singing and praising God. And they seem uh, to not be doing this out of a sense of fear, but just because it's who they were. There was just a calm and a peace about them. Um, they, they just handled it well. And he noted it and, um, and kind of clicked it in the back of his brain. And one of the, one of the men asked him, like, do you, do you know the Lord Jesus? And Wesley kind of gave this flippant response. Well, yes, I, I know him. Um, but in his journal, he writes, I think I may have answered in vain. Like, he just, you know, I don't know if that was hindsight looking back on things. Um, he, he shows up in Savannah, and he, he begins to instill in people this sense of devotion. Um, Savannah is an up-and-down little passage for him. Um, it, it's not a complete disaster, but it's not everything that he wanted. At some point in time, he was close to getting married to a young lady. Um, but Wesley in a sense, shot himself in the foot with that. He had always toyed in his head with the idea of, and, and there, there are parts of Wesley that bring him very close to Catholicism. This is one of those things that you're like, this seems, seems really Catholic. Um, he, he kept toying in his head with the idea of the goodness of priestly celibacy. And so he just wasn't sold on marriage. Eventually, this young lady ends up marrying somebody else. And through a series of events, he then denies her communion. Um, and denying somebody communion is not, a, is not a minor thing, right? Denying somebody communion is, is a major thing. And he, he argues that this is based on a technicality, that she didn't come to him and ask him to take it or something like that. Um, they sue for slander and libel. Um, and eventually the whole thing is settled by Wesley saying, I, it's probably best if I just go home. Um, so he goes home, and at this point, uh, not much is going well. Um, he feels like he was a failure there. Uh, he doesn't know what his, his work in life is going to be. Uh, his time in England is pretty despondent when he gets back. Um, and this uh, ends up leading him back to the Moravians. Um, so he, he goes back to England. Um, he connects with the Moravians again. Um, and then at some point in time, he goes to, uh, on May 28th of 1738, or May 24th, excuse me, um, which is um, the Aldersgate experience for him. He goes to a church on Aldersgate, and um, he hears, I always, I always thought that this was really funny, he, he hears somebody reading the preface of Martin Luther's um, commentary on the Romans. So if you think my preaching is boring, remember that I'm not just opening up Martin Luther's works and just reading from them. Um, at least they're not plagiarizing them, right? They're, they're literally just reading from them. But it's not even a commentary on a text. It's just like the preface to his commentary of all the places to be moved. Um, but, but in that commentary and in that preface to his commentary, 
he is speaking about his own personal conversion. For whatever reason, the gentleman is reading from it. Uh, Wesley goes, and he says that, well, I'll read you what he wrote. Uh, In the evening I went very unwillingly, I love that, uh, to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Uh, About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. So that, that answer that he gave to the Moravians when he was heading to Savannah a long time ago, when he, he thought he, he had answered in vain, this is sort of a response to that. He said, Not, now I know I, I did trust in Christ. Uh, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So from this point on out, um, he just really devotes himself um, to tie, he eventually has to break ties with the Moravians, but they lead him into a, a deeper faith. Um, and his, his time with them and then his time with George Whitfield also helped to sharpen him and influence him. Um, at first, um, Whitfield's, Whitfield's influence on him was felt practically more than theologically. Um, theologically, they had a falling out, even though Wesley was the one who would finally, in the end, preach his funeral. Um, they, they had a falling out. They would become good friends again. They had a falling out because of theology. Uh, Wesley, a devoted Arminian, um, Whitfield, a devoted Calvinist, uh, they would eventually patch things up and, and become good friends again. But the major thing that Whitfield did for him was say, John, you, you can preach outside to people. Um, and Wesley has this very weird first response to it. And his his first response is to, to write in more than one place that converting people in the open air felt sinful um, because it wasn't in the context of a church. Um, and the reason why this is such a big deal is because as Wesley moves outside, he begins to reach people who aren't going to go into church. So he's, he's going to spend a lot of time uh, preaching to coal miners in, in the hills of England. Uh, he's going to going to preach to to people who just wouldn't go to a church meeting but if they're outside and it it's outside you're not you're not going with a purpose you're just kind of there and this is exactly what Whitfield was doing all over um, America which we will talk about in either next week or the week to come Um, so Wesley starts to do this and and eventually things just kind of boom Uh, it's just this automatic sort of people are responding, and they're responding in droves. And what ends up happening is when these things start to increase, they ad hoc, and I, I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that, they basically ad hoc an organization to this thing. Um, now, it, it's important to note that Wesley, throughout the entirety of his life, we're going to talk about how he didn't completely follow through on this, but um, throughout his entire life, never wanted to, to distance himself from the Church of England. And so he, Methodists in England, stayed firmly within the Church of England his entire life. Um, that couldn't happen in the States for obvious reasons because they weren't connected to England anymore eventually. Uh, he dies in 1790. Uh, so the American Revolution has, has already gone through, and, and he knows of this well. Um, he doesn't ever want to want to separate from them, so he's still connected to the church, um, but he, he does step on the 
toes of the church quite a bit. And what he ends up doing is providing this this organization that comes under the umbrella of the Church of England has its own sort of structure. It's very complicated, and I'm not even going to take time to explain it to you. Uh, one, because I started to read it, and I was like, nah, I'm not reading this anymore. So um, I, I just don't care about how uh, Wesley, under the umbrella of the Church of England, organized Methodism. Um, but a lot of it was top-down. Um, a lot of it was, was him um, authorizing and, and doing things on his own because it wasn't meant to be a church. It was meant to be, be an, um, uh, uh, an organization with him as the leader involved in the church. It was like basically a very, very large club within one church, okay? Um, somebody comes along later uh, to summarize where um, Wesley stands on things and he, he provides what he calls the Wesleyan um, quadrilateral. The historian's name is Outler. Um, and he says there's basically four corners to understand how Wesley makes decisions. Um, I'm going to argue with this a little bit. But the first one is Scripture. He, he says if it's not found in Scripture, we can't abide by it, and we're going to reject it. The second is tradition. The third is experience. And the fourth is reason. Um, and so, he, you know, you... what these are kind of the four things that Wesley seems to always come back to to make the arguments for what he's doing and what he doesn't do. Um, as, we, as we kind of wrap up, I want to talk about some of the positives that Wesley has in his life um, and the good things that he ends up doing, and then some of the negative things as well. Um, one, and the number one thing, is he clearly wanted people to come to a deeper and abiding faith in Christ. So uh, any of the, the other issues that we might have with him, which are frankly few far in between, um, he was a deeply pious man. Um, he, he lived out what he taught. Um, he was faithful in his life to the Lord Jesus Christ in all things that we can tell. Um, this isn't one of those guys where there's like this huge scandal at some level in his life. There's just nothing. He's just, he's a good man. Like, we can look at Luther, like, there's this anti-Semitism that looms there in his life. There's nothing like that in Wesley's life. Um, he, he is a sound man from, from beginning to end. And so, um, his, his own personal faith, his desire to have other people come to a deep and abiding faith, those are really, really good things. Um, the need for, for people to have a a semblance of personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is also a really good thing. So again, there is a sense in which the church was allowing people to say, if, you're, if you ascribe to these certain things and you come into the church to celebrate the Lord's Supper, you were baptized when you were a kid, and you're just kind of doing the stuff, you're, you're going to be okay. Which, frankly, the Church of England has always skimmed a very thin line in between Protestant life and Catholic living. And, and at this point in time, it, for Wesley, it, it's really kind of just a rote thing that people are doing, much like we would, a lot of people think Catholics do today. So um, this, this in desire for people to have a really personal belief and faith in Jesus Christ is good. Um, We'll, we'll talk about this in a, a little bit, um, but he also often used non-authoritative preachers. And what I mean by that is um, the church at a time 
was the one who had to authorize people to go out to preach and to teach. And what Wesley did was say, there's a great need if people can preach and teach, we got to send them out. And so um, one of the reasons why he grew so fast was he, he had an army of people who were willing to go out and preach and teach. And what you find in America um, is this movement west in the east, especially in the northeast, where you had Church of England's planting of churches, you find a lot of high churches when they're not there anymore. But there would have been high churches there, Presbyterian churches, um, churches that have a lot of formal structure to them. As you move to the west, especially um, southwest, where people were really scattering in the plain states and stuff like that, the churches that eventually take over there are two forms. There's Baptist churches and there's Methodist churches. And those churches eventually evangelize the west uh, beyond the Appalachians, primarily because they didn't need a heavy church structure to send people out and to tell them where to go and to have established churches. They felt like as long as they knew the gospel they were able to go out and to preach the gospel in settled churches. Now, the major problem that they were going to face is Baptists especially. They were going to have a lot of uneducated people and a lot of unqualified people doing that. But nevertheless, this, this sort of um, work by Wesley in this way um, saved a lot of people um, because they, they used that. He was also um, hugely influ- influential in abolitionism. Um, William Wilberforce, a name that most of you know, uh, was a student of Wesley's, very devoted to him. Um, he wrote a lot about the slave trade. He wrote a lot about uh, not just slavery in the New World, but about England's role in the slave trade and things like that. For all those reasons, he was just an excellent man. Um, he had negatives, though. Um, we, we wouldn't agree with him on things like Arminianism. Um, however, um, he had other things that were, were far more important than that. He had this um, odd belief, uh, and calling it perfectionism isn't okay, but something he called entire sanctification, where he thought that there could be people, and he claims to have met people, although he never claims this for himself, that had been moved to such grace in Christ that they were free from sin. They just, they just had none in their lives anymore. Um, they were pious through and through and had reached the, when he says entire sanctification, it means like the sanctification has been played out in them to its fullest extent. They are what, what they're going to be in heaven. Only in heaven they're going to get resurrected bodies. Um, so it's important to realize, again, John never claimed this for himself, but he taught that this was possible. Um, and, and I think that that is, um, um, I don't know how harmful it is, uh, because I, I don't know many people who would just look another person in the eye and claim it. Um, that seems like claiming it might make you not have it. I don't know. It's one of those weird things. Um, but uh, at least he, he held it out there. I don't think that that's scripturally wise. Um, at the end of his life, uh, some have openly wondered whether he subscribed to universalism uh, because of certain things that he wrote. Not not in his own writings, but he wrote in praise of other people who wrote things that sounded universalist. Um, there's no real evidence of that, though, and I, I doubt, given the other, you know, 70 years of his life, that that was true. Um, his pragmatism was the real issue for me. Um, he claims to want to be near the Church of England and to follow its rules, but when that got in the way pragmatically of what he wanted to do, he would shove it aside. So, 
the Church of England, you had people in charge of parishes. Those preachers, the, the vicars who were there, were in charge of those parishes, and they were the ones who were preaching to those people. You weren't to just like wander around the countryside preaching to other people's people and calling yourself in the Church of England and saying, we all are in agreement here. Uh, you weren't to do that. And yet he continually do, did that. And the church would talk to him about it, and he'd be like, eh, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so there's a real, a real difficulty with that. Uh, it, it also um, came out when he would deal with women preaching. Um, at first he was against it, but the, the way in which he gets around this is basically a woman writes him and says, we're being super effective and he basically says, okay, if you're being effective. Um, and, and it's this sort of, um, this very pragmatic response to a theological issue that I, I really take issue with. It's not, it's not being driven by scripture. She, in her letter to him, um, I can't remember the, the lady's name, um, she basically, uh, she's famous, uh, I can't, I, excuse me, I can't remember her name, um, but she basically says, hey, if, if we have an effective call in our life and people are being saved by it, then it should be okay. Um, she makes no effort to like offer scriptural arguments for why this ought to be so. And it's simply a pragmatic thing for him to say. At first he's like, okay, teach, but don't exhort because that comes too close to preaching. And then he gives up on that when he sees how effective a lot of these women are being. And, and again, I think that that's just raw pragmatism which eventually always wears itself out. This is the same reason why we've got a whole bunch of churches around that do fluff, because they, they can get a whole bunch of people coming in with the fluff, and they say, ah, look at the numbers. This is pragmatism. Um, and that's not always the best way to, to go about things. Um, he also just, uh, the, the one area of his life that we could draw attention to morally um, is later on in life when he is 48, um, he takes a wife, um, she, she was a widow uh, who had, I think, four kids. Um, his, his life was incredibly busy. His life was, um, had, at this point in time, so many demands placed upon it. And eventually, after 10 years, she got fed up and said, you, you're, you pay no attention to me. You pay no attention to my, my children or our children. Um, and she leaves him. So by the time he's 58, she leaves. Um, he doesn't seem to care. I'll be honest with you. Like, again, there's this sense of celibacy in the priesthood that he keeps coming back to. Um, now, you could argue that he, he doesn't do anything wrong um, by the technical letter of Scripture. Um, it doesn't seem like he truly loved her. Um, and I mean that both in the emotional sense and in the sense of providing what she needs. Um, it's not clear. It's it seems to me like he's putting his work for the Lord over his love for his wife, which once you take on a wife, cannot compete with one another. Like, you, you, can't, you can't lay one at the blame of another. Um, he ends up writing uh, when she, she leaves him. He writes, I did not forsake her. I did not dismiss her. I will not recall her. Um, so it's a way of him clearing himself, but then saying, but I, I'm not going to, track her down. Um, it's not a good look. Uh, it wasn't great for him. But um, Wesley did a lot, of, a lot of extraordinarily excellent things in his life. 
Um, he was probably the most loved man in England when he dies. Uh, he eventually, um, again, has problems here in, in America. Um, when America, from his perspective, rebels, and then we win, um, when, when that happens, uh, there's a problem for, for most of the churches in America at this time, when that happens, we're Anglican. They were Church of England people. What happens is when the rebellion starts, the church, led by the king, says no communion, that you can't give the rebels communion. And so a good number of them feel cut off. And Wesley, again, fighting against the Church of England, says no, we, we have to give them. And so he actually ordains on his own people to go and offer communion to people, which again stands against the Church of England. So there's this weird thing that's always going on in Wesley where he says, I, I follow this, but then when pragmatic things get in the way, he just chuffs that aside and goes, goes ahead. Um, but overall, I think that um, his role in uh, during the time of the First Great Awakening, um, primarily though his role was in England during this time, we'll talk about Edwards and um, Whitfield and their role in, in that sort of awakening in America. Um, he's, he is overall um, a very helpful influence, certainly a much more biblical and wise way of, of handling these sort of, um, sort of response to the over-dogmatic way in which churches were handling doctrine than either rationalism or spiritism, um, even if we, we want to clarify a couple of points and, and challenge him on a couple of points. Um, he is, he is, uh, was a helpful man for the kingdom of God, and so uh, good, a good thing to think and pray about. So, or not pray about. We don't need to pray for him. He's probably with the Lord. Um, so anyways, questions? I went a little bit longer than I thought I would. Yes, sir. Pretty closely. So they, yeah. I mean, there's obviously slide within Wesleyan churches for things that Wesley didn't face at the time. So, um, just like you, you get Lutheran churches that are out to pasture as well. Um, but I think that the, the idea of um, his ideals at least live on in, in letter there, if not actually being lived out in spirit. So I think that they try to. Um, but yeah, whether or not they're actually devoted, I think that that's a separate. But there's certainly some Methodists that are clearly devoted to the things that Wesley was devoted to in the study of scripture and, and growing in piety. Are, are all of them? No, no. They should be, yeah. I mean, like, they, they can take different names because the Wesley never actually founded a church. Like, he died thinking we can't separate from the Church of England um, and he, he kind of carried that to his grave. We're not going to separate from the Church of England. Charles had asked him to a number of times, and he seemed like he kind of wanted to. But um, so there was never a founding of, of a church after his name. And so Wesleyan churches and Methodist churches generally flow from the same source. So I, you, 
maybe they wouldn't want you to consider them the same. I mean, they might be two different denominations now, but they, they all kind of came from the same source, even if they diverged at some point in time. So, yeah. Any other questions? All right. Thanks for, thanks for st sticking that out. Um, I, I didn't get to interact too much with the guys and ask questions, so um, we'll work on that next time. But let's, let's pray and ask for, for God's blessings. Uh, Father, I am, I'm thankful for uh, John Wesley, and he is a, a good example of um, what the, the use of a man in your hands who is devoted to your word and devoted to you can do. Um, and, and while um, under a microscope there are things that we would have complaints with in his life, um, we, we see the good that he wrought in his life, the devotion that he had to you, his honor and desire to glorify you with how he lived and walked, um, the amount of people that he influenced for the better. Um, we're just grateful for these things, Father, um, and certainly we have reaped the benefits of them in a number of ways. We pray for um, our own devotion to you, um, knowing that we are not here simply because um, we're expected to be here. Uh, let us not be here simply because this is a, a pattern of our lives. I, I'm happy if that is the case, um, other than having people just stay at home. Um, but we want more from folks than that. Um, we want more from ourselves than that. So I pray for this sort of deep devotion in your people. I pray that they will be built up in the Lord Jesus Christ to um, put off the old man and to put on the new. And in all things, Father, be remade in his image. We pray of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.